You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Something known as car cloning, where criminals can take stolen VIN numbers and use it to create replica tags so that, you know, you might get pulled over when you're driving your car in, you know, Maryland, right? And the police are like, hey, we've, you know, we've got a warrant for this or whatever it is when uh, you get pulled over. And it's actually because someone else who committed a crime who's duped your car's information has done it, you know, you know, somewhere else in the state. Greetings to all and a warm welcome to the Hacking Humans podcast brought to you by the Cyberwire. Every week we delve into the world of social engineering scams, phishing plots, and criminal activities that are grabbing headlines and causing significant harm to organizations globally. I'm Dave Bittner, and joining me is Joe Kerrigan from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute. Hey, Joe. Hi, Dave. we got some good stories to share this week. And later in the show, my conversation with Sam Crowther. He is founder and CEO of Casada. We're talking about some stolen automobile accounts. But first, a word from our sponsors at Know Before. Time travel would be a particularly powerful tool in the hands of any overworked InfoSec professional. Think about it. Being able to see the future and know which malicious emails would be missed by all the existing filters. Your ability to stay one step ahead of the bad actors would rise to a whole new level. Unfortunately, our sponsors haven't cracked time travel just yet. They are, however, introducing a new phishing protection product that can block and remove dangerous phishing emails before your users even see them. Stay with us, and in a few minutes, you'll learn how. All right, Joe, uh, we got some follow-up here to start things off with. What do we got? We do. Steve wrote in with an interesting story. He got an email that read, Hello, Steve. I'm from Google, and you've been chosen to receive a gift package from Google for your work as part of the Google 3D community. Hmm. Please provide address details so we can send you your gift. Now, Steve is paraphrasing because this came out. He got this email a long time ago. Hmm. In fact, he was a volunteer for a beta program to use Google imagery to make 3D buildings for their platforms. Okay. So, you know, when you zoom in on Google Maps, right. you can see 3D buildings. He was sure. part of that. Okay. Uh, of course, he thinks an email from Google, well, maybe. <laughs> right. Uh, but it turns out it was actually legit. He, he did provide mailing information that wasn't his home address. But he provide, provided mailing information, and a couple of weeks later, he got a mug and some stickers and some other swag from Google huh. as a thank you for contributing to it. Hmm. Okay. What's the lesson here? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know that I would have responded to, to this. Yeah. I don't know that I would have volunteered my time for a large corporation. I'm one of those guys that thinks, no, I, I'm, I'm not doing that for you for free. Okay. You're a multi-billion dollar corporation very highly valued. You make tons of money. You can pay people to do this. Yeah. Yeah. And so I, that's, that's my thinking on it immediately. But, uh, you know, other, maybe, maybe I give them a post office box or something, hmm. you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, good for Steve. Yeah. Got, got some, got himself some, some nice swag. Yeah. Uh, we got another message here from Derek who writes in with a question. He says, hello, Dave and Joe. I heard you on your fine show, Hacking Humans. 
and elsewhere that a concern with AI is its ability to draft convincing phishing emails. However, it's also been noted that phishing emails are often intentionally littered with spelling and grammar mistakes to limit their reach to those who may miss those telltale signs. Is there a tension between those two claims, or is the claim with AI that you'll be able to mass-produce spear phishing emails tailored to each individual? Given the wide availability before LLMs of service that can assist with spelling and grammar, those errors seem more like a feature than a bug. Curious about your thoughts on this. So I have my thoughts on it. Yeah. Um, my thoughts are it depends on the audience. I don't see a tension between these two uh, statements. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think, yeah, spear phishing, there is a definite use case for LLMs and spear phishing right. uh, to make them really, really good. My concern with LLMs and spear phishing is that eventually somebody's going to train these models. In fact, it may already be happening. They're going to be training the models on the writing style of the person they're trying to impersonate. You know, if, you're, if your writing style has errors, maybe LLMs will eventually put those in there. Right. But the idea is who are you trying to convince, right? Who are you trying to, uh, who are you trying to scam? If you're trying to scam somebody where the use case is, I need a well-written email, Mm-hmm. you're going to use an LLM. If you are trying to scam somebody with like a Nigerian print scam, maybe not. Yeah. Maybe you just use the old template you have that's ready to go. Right. Uh, and you're going to send out a million of those emails a day and answer the five or six that you get in response every day. Yeah. I'll just mention real quick, LLMs are large language models, which are the... Thank you. The, yeah, um, I didn't clarify that. Generative AI systems that things like ChatGPT uses. Correct. Uh, yeah, I mean, I pretty much agree with you here. Um, I think the the two have their own purposes. Um, and I think the well-written letters are more likely to go towards spear phishing rather than broad, you know, spray and pray phishing type of spammy sort of emails. Right. I think what you're saying about um, training on someone's writing style is interesting. and And I'll just add to it that and we know in a lot of these cases, the bad guys will get access to someone's email account and they'll camp out there for a while. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah. If, they've, if, they've, if this is a business email compromise, they can feed tons of data into that model. Right. So if you, they're camping out in your email account and they can download the last year's worth of email or for or lots more. of folks, or, <laughs> every email they've ever written, right. <laughs> uh, yeah, then they could absolutely load that into a model and it would probably be able to do a pretty good version of whoever's email account that they've uh, broken into. Yeah, you remember uh, when you made that uh, voice, uh, the, the voice recording of you that was simulated? Yeah. It's like that, but only in writing. Right, right. All right. Well, thank you, Derek, and thank you, Steve, for writing in to us. Uh, Of course, we would love to hear from you. If you have something you'd like us to consider on the show, you can email us. It's hackinghumans at n2k.com. All right, Joe, let's jump into our stories here this week. Uh, I'm going to kick things off for us. And actually, my story comes from friend of the show, Graham Cluley. Graham. I wonder Uh, how Graham is. The only person who has... has co-hosted this show other than you. Right. <laughs> That's filled, correct. He filled in for you once when you were unavailable. I so, was unavailable, yes. Yeah, so Graham uh, is, is uh, certainly a friend of the show. And, of course, I have appeared on Graham's show many times. You've been on Smashing Security as well, right? Yes, twice. Yeah, so 
Uh, Graham is co-host of the Wouldn't Smashing Security. Wouldn't it be nice Security. to have you back on again, Dave? <laughs> <laughs> it's not up to me, Joe. I know. Uh, Graham <laughs> is uh, co-host of the Smashing Security podcast along with uh, Carol Terrio, which if you have not checked out, is another fine podcast to add to your list. Uh, but Graham has posted something here on his own blog, and it's titled, Yikes, my sex video has been uploaded to YouPorn, apparently. <laughs> Hold on. <laughs> Let me go look. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, who among us hasn't already seen a sex video involving Graham Cluley? They're just, they're all over. But uh, anyway, seriously. um, So this sort of tracks through an email that Graham got, and I think it's perfect for our show here. It uh, claims to come from YouPorn, which, of course, is uh, the online adult website uh, that's, I suppose, if not famous, at least known for its user-contributed content. Um. Okay. I'm going to take your word for it, Dave. <laughs> or so I've heard. So I've heard. Um, so it, it says it comes from uh, info at youporn.com. Uh, and the message from them uh, starts off by saying, Greetings. Our AI-powered tools have detected that you are featured in a sexually explicit content that was uploaded to our platform. And Graham points out here that the YouPorn logo and the message make it all look legit. Uh, and he says, uh, uh-oh, it seems YouPorn's AI algorithm has detected me in a sex video that has been uploaded. He says, now I can be forgetful, but I'm reasonably sure that I have never knowingly appeared in a sexually explicit movie, yet alone uploaded it to YouPorn. Right. Uh, so... One would hope. Yes. Um, but what... This email is claiming is that YouPorn has some sort of automated AI technology that automatically detects people. Right. Uh, and, you know, Graham— and somehow knows their email address. That's right. That's <laughs> right. Well, let's give Graham the benefit of the doubt. He's, uh, you know, he's a person of note. He's, right. He's, a, he's certainly famous in certain circles. Yes. Uh, so perhaps that could happen. <laughs> perhaps. <laughs> perhaps. <laughs> Uh, they say, of course, we take the security and privacy of our users very seriously and we use advanced technology to help detect and prevent the distribution of non-consensual intimate images and videos. Uh, it then goes on to say, the video will be published to our library within the next seven days and you will have an opportunity to review the content after the grace period has passed. Mm, you know what that sounds like to me, Dave? Go on. An artificial time constraint. Exactly what I was going to say. And Graham says that too. He says, ouch, so I, if I don't want the video published, I have to let them know within seven days. Uh, all he has to do is click the link on the video to check out the video. Ah. But there's a problem. Okay. The link doesn't go anywhere. There's no link. In other words, there's, there's a highlight but the link has no destination. No href. So it exactly. So it's a it's a dud link, right? Uh, it's now it, just there to appear to be there, but it doesn't actually go anywhere. Interesting. Yeah. Why I wonder. Well, uh, because I suppose the expectation would be that this is going to take you to view the video. Right. But then you go, you're like, oh, thank goodness. I'll be able to see what this is about. And then you click on it. It doesn't go anywhere. Now you're perhaps even more nervous. Right. That, ah, I can't even this see This isn't it. working. Right. Okay. Uh, uh, what am I going to do? Right. Making you even more nervous. The letter goes on to say, if you did not approve the upload of this content, we kindly ask that you follow the instructions below to take immediate action. Our platform boasts an extensive network of websites and partners 
which means that ensuring the security of our content is a top priority. To achieve this, all uploaded content is digitally fingerprinted using both the MediaWise service from Vobile and Safeguard, our own proprietary digital fingerprinting software. This helps to prevent unauthorized distribution of content on our platform. Sounds good? Yeah. I wonder how accurate that is. Well, let's keep reading. Okay. It says, The basic express removal, blocking, and protection against re-uploading of content on our network of 20 websites costs 199 U.S. dollars. I see. (laughs) However, it gets better. They're (laughs) better than this? (laughs) Well, by better, I mean worse. Right. (laughs) They say, our plan A includes everything in the basic removal option, plus digitally fingerprinting the content and automated removal and protection against re-uploading to our vast network of partner websites, over 300, for one year, all for 699 U.S. dollars. So, Dave... They're saying that for 700 bucks, 700 U.S. dollars, yeah. they will keep your porn, porn of you, off the internet. Right. Okay. Your yes. non-existent porn. That's right. What a great business model. But there's more. Okay. <laughs> it says, we recommend Plan B, which includes everything in Plan A, plus digital protection by MediaWise and Safeguard based on facial recognition data for three years. This ensures that any content with your biometrics will be blocked, and it costs... 1399 U.S. dollars. 1400 bucks. That's a bargain at twice the price, Dave. Three times the time, <laughs> twice the price. There you go. There you go. All right. Uh, yeah, three years. Uh, and Graham says uh, three years isn't as good as perpetual, right. but it's better than one year, and they seem to be guaranteeing that any content with his biometrics will be blocked. Right. So Graham says, where do I pay? <laughs> right. <laughs> it goes on and says... The payment process is automated through a Bitcoin gateway. Ah, and here we go. digital number you receive below is unique to your case and doesn't require any extra confirmation. To transfer the amount corresponding to your chosen option, copy and paste this identifier into your preferred cryptocurrency wallet. So, <laughs> this is a new take on the sextortion scam. It is. That's all this is. It is. It is, but it's pretty elaborate. I I think it's safe to say. I would agree. Yeah. This is, um, first off, this is not how any of this works. Right. Right. And now in many states, and I think in many countries in Europe, there are laws against involuntarily uploaded intimate images. Right. Right. Yeah. Uh, you'll hear it referred to as revenge porn. Right. That's illegal a lot in a lot of places. Yeah. If you don't explicitly consent to the upload of this stuff to any service like like this YouPorn site, yeah. I guess they if they thrive on user content, if you don't explicitly consent to that, then chances are the upload is illegal. There right. are also other requirements for the upload. Yeah. Um, like some kind of verification that everybody in the video is over the age of 18. You'd think so, yes. <laughs> uh, no, I know there's a legal requirement for that <laughs> right. in the United States. Right. Um, and that there has to be somebody who's a custodian of records for that information. Okay. Uh, so you can't just upload a video that looks like somebody, the biometrics match, and Bob's your uncle. There there you go. Everybody's <laughs> everybody's looking at right. uh, Graham's, Graham's sex tape. That's, yeah. not, that's not going to happen. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, there's there's so much wrong with this from from an under, but most people don't know this, mm-hmm. right? So they might be afraid of it. Oh my gosh, how, how did this happen? Right. There might be people out there that even have these videos of themselves available 
And maybe they're thinking, oh, did my former partner upload this video? Right, right, right. And with everybody talking about AI these days, right, uh, we've introduced this magical capability into the mix now. Where right, and it and it does work and would be helpful in this kind of a uh, a situation. Right, but there is no. There is no AI model here. This is just, all there is is a Bitcoin wallet. I promise you that part is real. Right, 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 right. Perhaps you have a distinguishing tattoo or something that the AI can can recognize. All right. Well, we will have a link to this um, in the show notes. I I think I am not doing justice to Graham's uh, singular sense of humor that he expresses throughout this post here. Graham... Do recommend you go check it out and, and read the original. So we'll Graham have a link to that. is a very funny writer. He is. He's very, he's very good. All right. That's my story, Joe. What do you have? Dave, a couple of weeks ago, Proofpoint released their State of the Fish report for 2023. Okay. So I wanted to spend some time going over this report. All right. Because I love data, Dave. I know you do, Joe. <laughs> Am I going to bore you with this? <laughs> no, no. It's not, it's not my boredom I'm worried about, Joe. <laughs> Goodbye, listeners. <laughs> so... Um, We'll start off with the really interesting stuff. It was a commissioned survey of 7,500 working adults across 15 countries uh-huh. and uh, 1,050 uh, cybersecurity professionals Okay, uh, across the same countries. All right. They paired this with the data from that they've collected over the years because Proofpoint has uh, phishing testing software. Okay. Um, as well as uh, the ability to report emails from the customers. So there's 135 million examples of Proofpoint sending out fish tests and then 18 million examples of reported emails from uh, users at the customer sites. Okay. So a lot of data. Yeah. Right? And they've combed through it and uh, there is some interesting information in here. And one of the first ones I wanted to talk about was user understanding and knowledge gaps. Uh, Dave, you and I, when we talk on this show, we often say things like malware, ransomware, phishing, vishing, and smishing. Right. And I've talked about how much I hate the terms smishing and vishing. Yes. <laughs> um, but of all these terms, the only one that has consistently gained mind share among users is ransomware. Hmm. That's the only one that has gone up consistently since 2019. Okay. All the other ones are kind of like, the people who answered the survey could not answer, couldn't identify, or could, they, they, about the same all across. Right. Ransomware, 40% of people surveyed knew what that was. Hmm. Okay. 40%. Now, I'll tell you, Dave, that surprises me. Which direction? I would think that more people would know what ransomware was. Hmm. It's in the news. It is. All the time. Yeah. But only 40% of people know what it is. Huh. Phishing, 58% of people were able to identify. They were able to say what that is. Huh. And malware, 69% of people knew what malware was. Nice. Right. <laughs> Smishing and vishing down at, uh, around 29 and 30. Okay. They note that those are relatively new terms, smishing and vishing. Okay. So it's good that they don't know what, uh, or it, it's at least understandable that people wouldn't know what those are. Right. Uh, I think there's other other problems with that. I think the the that smishing and vishing are not really descriptive of what's going on. If you say phishing email... Everybody knows what a phishing email is. Uh, if I say a, smish, a smishing message, <laughs> uh, I think that there's got to be a better scam text message maybe. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, uh, they're you know, not great. There's a new acronym I saw, TOAD, for uh, phone calls. I can't remember, telephone, something. Oh. Um, 
It might even be in this report where I saw it. (laughs) (laughs) One of the big problems in our industry, Dave, is communicating with uh, the regular users the problems that exist and, and why they need to care. And I think a lot of that stems from our jargon. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I agree. I, I'll just quick aside here, since we're talking about things that uh, get our hackles up. Uh, I got a pitch from someone last week who claimed to be a cyfluencer. <laughs> I got, I got something like that on my um, LinkedIn. Yeah, and uh, you were a mutual connection. I think we probably got the same one. Yeah, well, I just ignored the connection. (laughs) (laughs) No, I didn't connect, but I I mean, I recoiled at the term. Right. uh, Yeah, I saw that person. I was, no, I'm done. (laughs) Ignore. (laughs) Ignore this invite. Okay. Glad it's not just me. No, not just you. All right. Back on track. Yes. uh, They have a section here called imposter syndrome. Hmm. Uh, I think that Proof Point could have done a little bit better with the titles that they picked because imposter syndrome is something completely different than what this is. This is impersonation. Okay. 21% of users don't know that an email can appear to come from anybody. Hmm, okay. Now, this ties in with what Graham was just talking about. 44% of people don't know that familiar branding doesn't make the email safe. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, maybe people are familiar with the YouPorn branding, right. uh, but that branding was all over that email. Right. Right. And it, I, I don't know if that's a real logo, but it probably is. Yeah. Right. I'm not going to verify that right now because this is a Hopkins <laughs> laptop and I don't want to have to answer questions that's right. later. That's right. <laughs> but we so, see this, you know, lots of these are, have, um, have to do with shipping. So you'll see the FedEx logo or the UPS logo or the postal service logo. Or you know, the DHL the, logo, or it has to do with Microsoft, uh, impersonating Microsoft and they put Microsoft's logo all over the place. Right. Anybody can do that. Yeah. Right. Anybody can do that. And apparently that's why they're doing it is because it works. Mm-hmm. Uh, 63% don't know that the text and the link destination on a, on a link in an email can be different. Mm. 63%. That's almost two thirds of people don't know that. Mm-hmm. That is shocking to me. Hmm. Okay. Have you met my father? <laughs> Hold on just a minute. <laughs> Your father's not a working adult anymore, right? No, he's he, not. He's not one of those guys. Uh, one of the people. No, I, I don't mean, you know, I, I mean, I, I use, my, obviously, I have, I, you know, I love my father to death, but, right. but I, I use him as be someone who's representative of, you know, a whole generation who is not a digital native. Yeah. And so all of this stuff is news to him and he really didn't have an opportunity to learn this stuff in the same way that you or I did. And certainly our children below us probably have an even better grasp of all this. Absolutely. I will say that I'm actually pretty pleased with the way my parents have grasped Mm. a lot of the tech that's coming on. That's good. Um, And I don't know why they're outliers like that. Mm -hmm. Um, My, my wife's parents, not so much. Yeah. Uh, But my, my, my mom and my dad have done pretty well identifying things that are scams. Maybe it's because they're just generally better at identifying things that might be scams. Yeah. Um, They both, by education, they're both financial people. Okay. So maybe that contributes to it. Like bookkeeping and accounting, those kind of things are, um, you know, all over, there's, there's scams all over the place. Yeah, there's a culture of oversight and auditing and just a general, you know, carefulness. Right. Now, in the habits, uh, they have a segment here called Blurred Lines. Okay. Uh, 78% of people use work devices for personal activities. Hmm. 
I think that means that 22% of the people lied. (laughs) (laughs) No, 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 I don't do that. I think you do. So you're talking about like checking Facebook or on your work machine. Right. Sure, okay. 72% of people admit that they use personal devices as work devices. Yeah. I, I think that's probably also... Artificially low. Are you telling me that you don't have your work email on your phone? I mean, right. maybe, maybe. Actually, that one I'm more willing to accept. I do a lot of work. I have my my phone that has my Hopkins email on it. Sometimes when I'm preparing for this show, I'll do that on my home computer. I will log in to my Hopkins account on my home computer. Sometimes mm-hmm. I don't install Hopkins software on my home computer, but I still use my home computer for for work stuff. Yeah. Uh, and this one I find shocking. 48% of fa- of people said that they let family and friends use their work devices. Dave, I don't let family and friends use my personal devices. <laughs> <laughs> I, and th- I think this is just, I think I'm the outlier here, Dave. <laughs> you know, huh. the rule at home is don't touch my computer. Just don't touch it. Right. I, you know, I've, I've, there's been a family computer. And now shortly after that, when computers decreased in cost and were readily available, everybody got their own computer. Yeah, And that way, there's no cross-contamination. One person's bad behavior doesn't necessarily impact everybody else. Right. Um, but, you know, I've never let my kids play with my uh, work computer at all. No. Uh, but they've never needed to because yeah. they've had their own computer. No, I think in the era of mobile devices, it's there's right. I, I'm having trouble imagining good reasons to let your family access a work computer. Here's some password habits. 28% of people say they reuse passwords for multiple work-related accounts, mm. <laughs> which is terrible. Yeah, doesn't surprise me. Right. Uh, 18% said they use a uh, a password manager, and wow. that's for work stuff, while 17% said they use it for personal stuff. Okay. Um, I've migrated to KeePass XC. Okay. Uh, and I keep two separate databases, one for work and one for home. Mm. And I found that to be a uh, a really good way to divide stuff. And it doesn't take long to migrate. I mean, every now and then I'm going to have to go to back to password safe, open up that thing and move a password over. But I haven't had to do that in a couple of weeks. Hmm. When it comes to rotating passwords, only 16% of people said they rotate uh, somewhere between one and four passwords. And this, uh, this means changing your passwords with some regularity, I guess. Yeah, yeah. That's interesting. I mean, I, I remember years ago, uh, before I knew better and before there was the, before password managers really were a thing. Right. I remember, you know, my wife and I would have, probably the best way to describe it is different tiers of passwords. Yes. Like you had the complex one that you used for the important stuff, and then you had throwaway ones that you reused for accounts that you didn't really think were where security wasn't as important. Right. Um, but, uh, and, you know, and to some extent, that. that's a good risk assessment for the time. Right. But now you need to use individual, you have password managers now, Correct. first off. So that solves most of the problem. Yeah. Um, and it, it really makes it really easy to change these passwords and to, and to create very hard to guess passwords. And it badgers you if you're reusing a password. Right. It badgers you if you're reusing it. It, right. it will, um, it will, uh, some of them will integrate with um, Troy Hunt's database yeah, and say, yeah. hey, this password's already been breached. Let's change it. Right. Uh, when it comes to rotating more than four passwords, the numbers are the same if you go with uh, five to 10 or more than 10. Hmm. So 6% of people say they do that. 
for both of those. Now, I don't mean if that means, I don't know if that means that 6% only rotate. I guess that means 6% only rotate five, somewhere between five and 10 passwords. Hmm. And some people rotate more than 10 passwords, 6% of people. I rotate more than 10 passwords, but I do not rotate all of them. There are some I just don't rotate. The passwords are already long and complex. The Mm -hmm. account is not that important to me. Mm -hmm. And if it's available, it's protected with some kind of multi-factor authentication. Okay. So I've done the risk assessment. If I lose uh, lose access to that account, I'm not um, I'm not going to be impacted that much. Okay. This is an interesting report. I mean, I I think I'm going in here in in here too much uh, into the data. I would encourage everybody uh, here. Oh, here it is. Toads, uh, which is telephone oriented attack delivery. Huh, I've never heard that before. Yeah. <laughs> oh boy. Right. Because what we really need is another acronym. Right. Joe. Yep. Okay. Right. Toads. Toads. Um, hmm. This is this is an interesting report. It's a really good report, and I think it's well done and well, well, well written. You know, I have my I have my uh, my issues with it in terms of, you know, but they're all just my issues. It's not any professional thing I have. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's just this is what irritates Joe. Yeah. Um uh, but it's it's a good report. I mean, check it out. You have to give them some information, but it's worth worth the read. All right. Well, we will have a link to that in the show notes. All right. It is time to move on to our catch of the day. Dave, our catch of the day comes from my boss, Dr. Tony DeBurra. Huh? Uh, somebody sent this message to him and... The president of our university, President Daniels. Huh. All um, right. Now, mind you, the email came from a uh, a Gmail address, mm-hmm. but it look it wasn't looking like it was spoofed. I've redacted the name and the name of the company, okay. um, but because I think this might actually be something legitimate, I don't know. Let's read, shall we? Okay. It goes like this: Dear President. I have reviewed thousands of schools' forensic internet data. I'm contacting you because I have found illicit material that is associated with your university. Your website has one associated website's link to yours referring domains that contain pornographic material and 12 links to your website backlinks associated with porn. I will include photos of the links and Excel spreadsheets detailing this relationship to your website. I'd like to explain more about how these things can become associated with your website. Your site is linked to other websites through hyperlinks that act as shortcuts to get to related topics. A backlink is like a recommendation on the internet. It's a link from one website to another, guiding people to more information on a related topic. Other than the links related to porn, there are some other backlinks. Google French redirects advertisement de redirection... (laughs) and some interesting subdomain backlinks from other universities that could indicate that someone has included the university on a PBN, private blog network, that could impact the Internet more than the Cambridge Analytica scandal. I hope that the university takes a serious look into this, and please let me know if I can be of any further help. Hmm. Hmm. So, they sent along a bunch of uh, Excel file or spreadsheets that were Google Docs. I didn't click on any of them. Tony didn't click on any of them. We had Chris Venghaus, our system engineer, look at it. He didn't click on any of them. <laughs> we actually discussed this. Okay. Could this be real? And the the point is, anybody can put a link on the internet that points to jhu.edu. Right. Right? Sure. It, somebody has done that on a porn site. 
Okay. And, and that might be the case. Allegedly. Yeah. Allegedly. Yeah. There's nothing we can do about that. No. <laughs> it's what I mean, I don't know what the what the what the business model is here for this guy, what he's trying to do, um, aside from maybe do some reputation management, but anybody and I think everybody on the internet knows that those kind of things can be added anywhere. Right. The one thing that is interesting in here is I didn't, I had to look this up. There's, there's a, uh, a, a technique called the private blog network. He calls it a PBN mm-hmm. where you pump a link into this, this PBN. It's just a bunch of blogs that essentially link to other sites. Right. right? The hope is that Google will index these sites and that you can have your, uh, your site rise in the search rankings it's part of uh, SEO, search engine optimization. Yeah, yeah. I so, mean, this is a very old school technique. Right. I, I remember this from probably 20 years ago. Right, yeah. Um, and, and this whole email strikes me as being 20 years old. Right. <laughs> right? Like like explaining, like, what what is a hyperlink? You know, right. those... <laughs> Those sorts of things. Um, so, I have, I have I another, another complaint about this. And this the terminology is correct, but backlink mm-hmm. uh, is just an externally, a URL that points outside of the current website, right? Okay. It, I don't know why they're called backlinks. That doesn't seem like a good name. Hmm. All right. I, I don't know. But, but no, I looked it up. That is, a, that is an actual term. Okay. You know, I hadn't heard it before. I'd always just refer to them as links. You know, the links can be internally. It makes me hungry, you know, like I'm going to cook up some eggs and some delicious backlink sausage, <laughs> right? Mm. Dave, I, I think I have my new harebrained business idea. That's right. Dave and Joe's backlink mm, sausages. Backlink sausages. <laughs> yeah, nothing but the best. That's right. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, uh, I, I don't know what to make of this. Like you said, it could be real it, or the... The offer could be real. Right. And even if it is, the service seems odd. Yeah. But even a- if it is real, it's written in such a way that makes me question it. Yeah. And it makes you all not want to follow up with this person. Right. Uh, there's one bit of hyperbole in here. When he compares PBNs, he says they could impact the internet more than the Cambridge Analytica, Analytica scandal. Yeah. That's not anything related to no. the, I mean, those two things are not the same thing. Right. And, right. and they're, uh, <laughs> it's like saying this will be worse than Watergate. Right. <laughs> okay. Maybe that's what he's dro- doing is that Maybe, PBNs yeah. are going to be worse than Watergate. They're just, not, not going to be worse than Watergate. No, just, or it's Cambridge just Analytica. cranking was, up the, cranking up the pressure. Right. Yeah. yeah the rhetoric and, and definitely. Ugh. Right. Anyway. All right. Well. Uh, thanks to Joe's boss, Tony, for <laughs> sending this over. We do appreciate it. And we hope that uh, good President Daniels at Hopkins uh, did not follow up. With no, he person. did not. I'm, I'm sure, sure he did not. Uh, yeah. <laughs> he has plenty of people. Yeah, somebody uh, else reads his email Guiding for him. him what to do. That's, right. that's a kind right. of... Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, again, we would love to hear from you. If there's something you'd like us to consider, you can email us. It's hackinghumans at n2k.com. Send those catches in. We were talking about mitigating cyber threats to your organization before your users even see them. The new Fish ER Plus from Nobefore was developed to help you supercharge your organization's email security defenses. How? You get a unique crowdsourcing advantage. 
More than 10 million highly trained Nobefore end users from across the globe catch and report malicious email that makes it through all the filters. Nobefore's Threat Lab then validates it with AI and with human researchers. Fish ER Plus blocks phishing threads other tools have missed and proactively removes them from your users' inboxes. Not quite time travel, but we think you'll agree it's a vital capability in any InfoSec professional's arsenal. Visit knowbefore.com slash products slash fish er dash plus to learn more. That's knowbefore.com slash products slash fish er dash plus. And we thank Knowbefore for sponsoring our show. Joe, I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Sam Crowther. He is founder and CEO of a security company called Casada. Uh, and he and his colleagues there have been doing some interesting work looking at credentials from automotive accounts. So things associated with your car right. that are being sold online. Here's my conversation with Sam Crowther. Our threat research team found evidence that some criminal syndicates had been launching credential stuffing attacks against large, particularly US-based auto manufacturers and selling the compromised accounts, which you know contained obviously the VIN numbers, the makes and models of the vehicles, the PII of, of the owners uh, within, within some of their Telegram communities. And it was at a scale that was quite alarming to go from zero to to where they where they landed. So it it raised just massive red flags on our side, and we figured this is absolutely something we need to talk more about. Well, what kind of scale are we talking about here? How many uh, stolen accounts did you all track? So the initial two waves, there was about fifteen thousand U.S. accounts for these cars that came up for sale. Well, let's talk about the, the information that was taken here and, and why it matters for folks. I mean, I think people are kind of used to getting reports that some of their information has been compromised, you know, their name, their address, maybe something like that. But I think it's fair to say most of us don't think about things like the, the VINs of our cars. I completely agree, right? And like when you buy a car you know, from a manufacturer, particularly modern ones, and you sign up for the account to manage your servicing or even, you know, manage the vehicle remotely, you never really think too much about what's going into it and, and the sort of access and information that it has. Well, let's talk about some of the things that folks can do with a VIN here. What are the risks? Something known as car cloning, where criminals can take stolen VIN numbers and use it to create replica tags so that, you know, you may get pulled over when you're driving your car in, you know, Maryland, right? And the police are like, hey, we've, you know, we've got a warrant for this or whatever it is when uh, you get pulled over. And it's actually because someone else who committed a crime who's duped your car's information has done it, you know, you know, somewhere else in the state, right? Which is really, really problematic. There's also the potential for uh, basically the duplication of ownership papers. So someone could own your car from the government's eyes. It's pretty concerning. And when you couple that with the information around where the individuals live, how to contact them, it can start to 
start to become, you know, a really scary form of identity fraud. Hmm. How so? How would folks uh, use this information specifically? You can leverage all the, you know, contact and VIN information. It's also possible to, like, take out loans, for example, against the car, like additional, you know, cash out, which I guess is like the ultimate goal for almost any you know, identity theft, right, is, is, is money from the banks that's tied to someone else. What's really interesting, though, on the actual, like, seller's side is how popular and how cheap seemingly these accounts were, right? Like, normally, to get your hands on enough information to, to properly commit identity fraud, you know, it's going to cost you 500 to to 1000 bucks. whereas you look at some of these automotive accounts and you can pay as little as $2 and you basically have all the information you need to get started. Huh. Any insights on why they were going so cheaply? My guess is that the sellers didn't realize the true value of them. And the folk that, that launched these attacks typically stick to retail. So taking over retail accounts with safe credit cards where the value is only a few dollars an account. And so I think this is new territory for them and they, they have not realized actually they're sitting on something far more valuable than, than a traditional retailer's online account. Now, one of the things that you all pointed out in your report here was that you know, a lot of these manufacturers have mobile apps for the vehicles now and then they're linked together. And by having this information, the bad guys can take advantage of some of the functionality of those mobile apps. Yeah, it's a it's a pretty scary thought, isn't it? The fact that all someone really needs is your username and password and then your VIN and they can see things like car location, you know. There's innocuous things like air conditioning, but the ability to lock, unlock, remote start. You're starting to again get into a, a something that, you know, folk have on the security side have sort of, you know, shouted from the mountaintops could happen. Uh, where where someone takes over your car, it actually just you know is one step closer to being very real. Hmm. What are your recommendations for folks to protect themselves against this sort of thing? So, look, the number one would be, and I know it's said over and over again, but unique passwords, particularly on systems like this. I know it's probably not something many of us think about being overly sensitive, but the reality is, it's actually quite important for us to protect it. So. Making sure that you know access to that account is you know two way favorite where it can be. It's a strong password, and then you know if you can disable certain functionality or you can avoid having some of these accounts entirely. Maybe if it's not going to you know impede your user experience, it may be best to do so. Right in a lot of cases, most people don't need these accounts. Most of the cars attached to these were old, from what we could see, and. There was no app to control them remotely for these older models. So there was really no big value add, yet they'd sort of been, you know, driven to sign up by the manufacturer. You know, it's a really interesting point you bring up. You know, my my wife happens to be in the market for a car and she hasn't purchased a car in, oh, probably about a decade or so. And she's finding it frustrating uh, that she can't get away from a lot of these electronic enhancements that she's not really that interested in. They're right. They're just, they're there by default and you can't do much about it, can you? No. And, you know, as you say, it does open up kind of a whole new attack surface 
that we hadn't really considered before. You know, p- people who listen to this show um, hear me say over and over again that, you know, my favorite iPhone accessory is my car. And I think, it, you know, it, we're really getting to that point. Yeah, I completely agree. <laughs> completely agree. <laughs> Is there any responsibility from the car manufacturers here? I mean, have have they chimed in on, on any of their attempts to secure this kind of thing? A huge responsibility, right? Like, this is ultimately their problem. If this happened in any other industry where the information was as sensitive, there would be outrage. Like, imagine if, you know, the, the MyChart accounts you have for your medical information had the same problem. Like, it, the impact would be pretty material. And functionally, this is very sensitive PII. So we've reached out and tried to notify the manufacturers. One has engaged. The others have remained silent. Um, the one that's hmm. engaged has been really good and proactive about actually, you know, properly digging in and looking at what went wrong and, and how to address it, which is great to see. Yeah. Where do you suppose we're headed here? I mean, could, could you see uh, regulations coming that could help tie these sorts of things down better? General security, you know, rules and, and regulations around liability is something that will help here, right? You know, the, the world is so fast-paced, and, and particularly if you take the case of auto manufacturers who've been ripped out of the Stone Age very, very quickly, there's just so many different unique cases and data sets and data types to deal with. But, you know, laws around, hey, what is acceptable for an organization to lose when it comes to customer data, Right. How many accounts can be compromised before there are some, you know, whether it's like criminal or other sorts of charges brought against the company? Um, that's really where this needs to go. And if you look at other countries, they're starting to move there, right? Like actually, you know, my home country of Australia has recently implemented some new laws around liability if organizations are shown to, to be negligent. And the penalties are really severe, right? Similar to what you'd see in the European Union. And I really think that's the best way to do it. Because right now, the equation these companies make is, what's the chance we get caught? How much is it going to cost us if we get caught? You know, we're fine to accept that risk without actually really considering what the impact to their customers is. Yeah. You'd hope that we wouldn't have to get to the point where there was, you know, some kind of loss of life or bodily injury for folks to sit up and pay attention to this. That's, yeah, we do not want to get to that. That is not a great outcome. Joe, what do you think? I haven't heard this one before. Yeah. I mean, it it seems... Well, first off, the attack is something that just starts with a credential stuffing attack. Mm-hmm. And then uh, they're getting in and monetizing it by selling these things for a couple bucks a piece. Right. I put credential stuffing attacks into the social engineering category. Uh, some people don't do that. Mm. I do because they're exploiting a, a, a human habit. And they don't, these attacks don't actively attack people, but passively attack people mm, through okay. the things they've already done that, uh, by, like reusing passwords. Mm. And this is a habit that people have, uh, just like we saw in my story. A lot of people are reusing passwords. 28% say they use multiple passwords at work that are the same. Right. Um, this is why we say use a password manager, because that protects you from this kind of attack. Yeah. They're selling the access and the information, 15,000 accounts that have been breached. That's interesting. I'll bet that these guys amassed a bunch of different 
email and password pairs, and then just started stuffing the the three the big three auto manufacturers in the U.S. And that's how they got it. Could be they have access to this and they say, why don't we try this? And okay, so then the issue comes up of what what can these bad guys do with it? And Sam talks about car cloning. And funny thing is, once he said that you get access to your VIN number, your VIN rather, yeah. I shouldn't say VIN number uh, because the last N is number. Um, <laughs> if you're on your way to the junkyard, make sure you stop by the ATM machine. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but he talks about car cloning. Yeah. So this goes back to the olden days of car thieving, right? You would buy a car that was a model that you wanted, right? And it would be junked just in a, in a, in a wreck, never going to drive this car again, but you okay. buy it and you get a title. Then you would go and steal a car of the same model. And then they, they were people that I remember watching this on 2020. There were people that would cut the VIN numbers out and weld them back into the, to the stolen car and bam, you've got a new car. Huh. So they change all the VIN numbers on the stolen car to match that of the destroyed car. Right. Now you have a, now you have a new car with a clean title. I see. And everything's good to go. Uh, now, that can't be done so much because now we have these things like junk titles and salvage titles and uh, something called, I can't remember, but it, ha- it it says that you have to destroy the car. Okay. So somebody has to destroy the car and a junk title and a destruction, certificate of destruction, have to be, those cars can never be on the road again. Right. So you can't do that anymore, but you sure can take a perfectly good car and clone that by putting another VIN on there yeah. and then go get a nice clean title for it. And then imagine when you've, when somebody's run a bunch of red light cameras in another state <laughs> and, they, mm-hmm. and doesn't pay them because they know you're going to be getting the bill for it. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a form of identity theft. Yeah. Another uh, weird modern problem here <laughs> is that now uh, maybe you can actually go ahead and install the app on your phone. If you're the bad guy and, because you have access to the user's account, have access to their car. It's possible. I don't. I, I don't know if that's. I don't know what these. I don't have a modern enough car, Dave. My car is from 2012. <laughs> but yeah, like I said, it, my my wife is in the market right now, and right. she's a little frustrated uh, by this by the forced sophistication of, of these cars. Yeah. It's hard, you know, it's hard to find one that's... Uh, I'm not looking forward to buying my next car. Yeah. Um, and the same problem is with TVs. You know, you can't get a TV that isn't a smart TV anymore. Right. Uh, and refrigerators. Uh, why? Why can't I get a... Re- I, actually, you can still buy dumb refrigerators, and that's the best <laughs> kind. You don't want to be dumber than your refrigerator, Dave. <laughs> no. You want the refrigerator to be a, one of the dumber things in the house. Yes. Yes. The, the refrigerator and the dog have to be at least as smart. Maybe the... <laughs> you know... Uh, Sam notified the manufacturers and heard back from one of them. Yeah. So 33%. That is actually a pretty good ratio. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) That's that one of these companies is taking this seriously. I would like to know which company it is. Uh, Sam didn't mention that probably because he agreed to non-disclosure stuff. Right. Uh, which I understand. So how do you protect yourself against this? Well, number one, use multi-factor authentication. Uh, I don't know that these auto manufacturers are going to offer that. So uh, in lieu of that, a password manager will help you create a strong and unique password that makes it almost impossible to fall victim to a brute force attack. Right. I say it's impossible. There is a chance that it will happen, but it's a very, 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 very small chance. 
auto manufacturers need to make multi-factor uh, authentication required for their sites. Mm. If you're going to have this kind of PII that's accessible, you have to take it upon yourselves to protect the user by making it so that they have to use multi-factor authentication at some level. Stop! Just stop the automated attacks like this, where fifteen thousand of your records get sold online. Well, and you've already got a—you've a, got a key. The car has a key, right? So, make the key MFA, right? The key has electronics in it. Yeah, you know, hey, that's a good idea, <laughs> right? Just Dave, make... you should be patenting that idea, not giving it away for free. <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> also, I think manufacturers need to let us minimize their attack surface. Our attack surface. What okay. if I don't want? my car to have a Wi-Fi hotspot. I don't, I, I just don't want that. Yeah. I, I don't want that to be available. I don't want that to be a thing. I don't even want there to be a SIM card in my car that is calling out and checking if it can be used for uh, Wi-Fi. Mm-hmm. I, I don't want that because that means it's probably one of those SIM cards that is lifelong and just sends data across it like is, it, like is in those Amazon Kindles. Uh, when you buy an Amazon Kindle, there's like a 3G or a 4G SIM card in there that just runs forever. It's low cost because the data usage is so low on those things. Right. I don't want that in my car. Right. I just don't. Right. right. <laughs> I don't want I'm just, that. I'm picturing you. Joe, I, I, you know I love you, Joe. I'm picturing I'm you driving. I'm, I'm going to cover my car in tinfoil. Well, I was just going to say, I was picturing you driving around in a car that had, had some kind of Faraday cage welded on <laughs> the entire perimeter of it. And, uh, you know, when you wanted to do something, you have a handheld antenna that you hold out of the window, you right. know, if you need to get some data or tune into a radio station or something. And, and you're just, and, and, you know, the neighbors are all looking at you through their blinds saying, oh, what has Joe done this time? Yes, <laughs> that, that happens a lot. The neighbors do. I see them peeking out going, oh, what's he up to now? <laughs> right. Exactly. Why does he have that big antenna mast out in the front yard? Yep. yep. Um, so yeah. there, there, is, there is something that, that uh, here that made me a little bit nervous with my current car. When I okay. bought it, I started noticing that if I drove by the dealership where I bought it, within a day, I'd get an email. No, letting me know that my um, that it was time for an oil change or something. Really? Yeah. Huh. And I'm one. I and but that was 2012. That car was made. Yeah, that doesn't make sense. It, but I'm wondering if there's some kind of just constant beacon emitting stuff, and whenever it whenever it drives by a uh, uh, a dealership that a toy, it's a Toyota a Toyota product. Whenever it drives by a Toyota dealership with this receiver in it. Does it just upload the data or does it just receive the huh. data? That's interesting. I mean, I suppose hmm. you, you do see, um, you'll see sometimes see devices on the side of the highway that have some sort of antenna array. Yeah. And uh, it's my understanding, like going way back, they used to have ones that would be able to detect what radio station you were listening to as you drove by. Really? Yeah. It was able, it was able to like sense some kind of resonance out of your, you know, the tuner. Right. Uh, and would able to gather that information anonymously back then. Um, so I suppose it's plausible, but it seems, I don't know, it seems unlikely, especially for a car that goes back that far. Yeah, but it's you 11 never years know. ago now. You never know. Hmm. Well, a little paranoia never hurt anybody. Yeah. Right? Maybe I should get one of my <laughs> software-defined radios out and start the car up and see what happens. Right, right. Just go around. Yeah. Yeah, go around and see if it's uh, if it's beaconing right anything. Hmm. I wonder what would happen. I'm sure now I'm thinking of how could you test this? You know, like right. if you 
If you drove by the dealership, but you pulled the fuse on your car's head unit on the, you know, the, the radio business in the car, would that do anything? Or is it, who knows, could be a passive thing. I don't know. Look, if anybody knows anything about this, <laughs> let us know. Let us know. Dave and I are going down the rabbit hole of paranoia that we yeah. probably shouldn't be yeah. going down. <laughs> yeah. All right. Anything else before we wrap up? No, here, that Joe? was it. That was all I had. I just wanted to, I, I, the, the last thing I was going into was my story about my car. Okay. That wasn't even in the script. We have digressed, but all the way at the end of the show. All right. Well, our thanks again to Sam Crowther. He is the founder and CEO of security firm Casada, and we appreciate him taking the time for us. That is our show. We want to thank all of you for listening. A quick reminder that N2K Strategic Workforce Intelligence optimizes the value of your biggest investment, your people. We make you smarter about your team while making your team smarter. Learn more at n2k.com. Our thanks to the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute for their participation. You can learn more at isi.jhu.edu. Our senior producer is Jennifer Iben. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Joe Kerrigan. Thanks for listening. Hey, listeners, we're always looking for ways to improve the N2K CyberWire network and maintain the intelligence-driven news experience that keeps you in the know on the latest developments in cybersecurity. We've launched our 2024 audience survey and would love for you to take a few minutes to share your feedback. And hey, there's even a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card if you complete the survey. Visit cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey and share your feedback now.